I need your imagination as I begin the sermon this morning, and for some of you this will be a big stretch, but I want you to imagine yourself as a missionary. And you've been called as a missionary to the red light district in Amsterdam, Holland, the world's most famous red light district. You live there for a year and a half. And surprisingly, at the end of that time, you are able to win a number of people to a transformed life in Jesus Christ, and a new community is established there. And because your calling is to be a missionary, you move on to another place to continue your ministry. And pretty pretty much you're feeling confident about the stability of the church. Then two years later, you receive an email, and it deeply disappoints you. The church you founded in Amsterdam is in disarray. Worship services are chaotic. Church leaders are constantly bickering, and sometimes they're bickering over important items like whether Jesus actually came back from the dead. Sometimes they're bickering over things like whether or not it's okay for Christians to participate in the sex trade. And sometimes they're bickering over things that you really don't understand because some people are saying you should not even eat at the restaurants in the red light district. And you're thinking, that's where I want all these people to Jesus. That's how I connected with them. The most hurtful part in this email, it says that some leaders came in, some other missionaries came in after you, and they began to disparage you. In fact, they uh, questioned your authority in the church in Amsterdam. Not Now many of the people who are there, the very people you want to Christ, don't trust you anymore. They don't respect you as a person or a teacher, and they don't think you're a worthy representative of Jesus. So you read this email, and you weep, and you pray, and you wait a few days, and then you sit down to write your response. How will you begin? What will you say? That's a fairly good parallel to the Apostle Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth. I'm going to say more about the church in the city next week for reasons I think you will understand better at that time, but surely Paul must be feeling slighted and awkward and disheartened as he sits down to write the letter to the Corinthians. I've often said that 1st and 2nd Corinthians are sort of our book, our books here at Corinth Church. After all, we are the church called after their name, Corinth. But here's something that surprised me, so I'm guessing it might surprise you. Having been pastor here for 26 plus years, I have never preached a sermon series that took us all the way through 1st Corinthians or 2nd Corinthians. I've often said this is a really important book to us, but I haven't actually, and we've preached lots of sermons on different passages in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and you would recognize some very familiar texts. For example, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Or your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that's in 1st Corinthians. Did you know that 1st Corinthians is the only place in the New Testament outside the Gospels, where we get instructions about communion. So the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, is in 1 Corinthians. 
What about that great passage about spiritual gifts where Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, 1 Corinthians. And the great love chapter which ends, and now remain these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians. Or the resurrection chapter, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? 1 Corinthians. And I've preached on all of those texts, but never just made our way from front to back through 1 Corinthians, and it seemed the right time to do it as we prepare to celebrate our 150th anniversary. So what we're going to do is hit the key passages. We won't still hit the whole thing. And you may be wondering, if you've been coming to church since January, what happened to the Apostles' Creed? Because we did paragraph one at the beginning of the year, I believe in God the Father, And then leading up to Easter, paragraph 2, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And there's a third paragraph we haven't gotten to. I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I promise 1 Corinthians will lead us directly there by the time we get to the end of these messages. So I'm just going to jump into the first nine verses, but how I began the sermon is really important to know. I've vacillated all week. Do I tell you how bad the Corinthians are? The, the no answer is because Paul doesn't start there. And I've asked a number of Bible studies this week, if all you knew about the Corinthian church were the first nine verses of the letter, what would you think about them? And to a person, they're all going like, well, we think they were a great church. They've got it all together. Look how Paul talks to them. So Paul doesn't mention that right up front. On the other hand, what Paul does say to this church is so much more powerful if you understand how conflicted and confused and even childish this church is. So they're, they're in conflict with one another. They are confused about certain areas of doctrine, some of them which are very important And they are childish in more ways than one about how they respond to one another and to the world around them. They are especially childish in the way they now think about Paul, who founded their church just about four years before he wrote this letter. So in light of all that, the way that Paul begins this letter is rather remarkable. So if you have your Bible or want to take the one in in the front of you in the pew, This is one of those sermons where you'll be able to focus with me well because I'm going to go rather rapidly through this. And I found so many powerful words in this text, so I decided I would have to limit myself to only one word per verse. So I'm going to pick one word out of each of the nine verses that begin Corinthians and explain to you a little bit about that text. But keep in mind that Paul is writing this to a very confused and conflicted and childish church. So we begin with verse 1, and the word I've chosen is the word apostle, which just means messenger or envoy or ambassadors. And it's used in two ways in the New Testament. It's used most commonly of the original 12, minus 1, plus 1 that was added after Judas committed suicide. Those 12 are the apostles, but the word is used in a secondary way of missionaries, and there are some of them that are even named, but these are people who are sent out because that's what the word means. And Paul stands between these two groups. He's not one of the original 12, but he saw the risen Lord and claims the same authority as those apostles. He's been sent out by the Lord, and Paul wants to begin this letter, don't forget who I am, who's writing this to you. I am an apostle. My calling is not dependent on you. I've been called by God to do this. Verse 2. 
The word I want to focus on here is the word call. And there's so much packed into this verse that it's hard to choose the one word, but this word call appears three times in different forms, and you're probably only going to recognize two of them. Paul's readers in Corinth have been called to be holy, but they are only one local church in a universal invisible family of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul connects all of that with the third word that's not quite as evident to you, and that is the word church. The word church is interesting, and literally it just means called out ones. So it's used of an assembly in, in out, outside the Bible. Uh, even in Acts chapter 19, there's a near riot in Ephesus, and it's called a church. It's called an assembly. Whenever you get people together in a place, it's a church. It's an ecclesia is the Greek word, the called out one. So if you remember when you were in junior high or high school, or maybe some of you still are, and you have to leave your classroom because there's an announcement, everybody get together for an assembly, that's the idea here. So it always implies a place to which people are called. So we're called into the church. Why is that important? Because we who belong to the church did not come up with this idea ourselves of a church, nor did we uh, initiate ourselves into this assembly. It was God who called us into this body. Verse 3. Again, Paul's greeting sounds rather formal and routine, grace and peace, but these words are powerful. I've chosen the word peace. Paul's understanding of peace has been shaped by Jewish thinking. Shalom. It means everything's good. All's calm all's well, there's peace. And Paul is praying this for his readers. Then verse 4. You would not expect Paul to say this to this church when he says, I always thank God for you. You would expect him to say, sometimes I thank God for some of you, or sometimes I thank God in spite of you. Instead, he says, always I thank God for you. How can he say that? Because he sees them through the lens of grace, which is God's undeserved favor. And most of you are church people enough that I can't say a whole lot more about grace that you don't already know. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is what we have that we do not deserve. But maybe you don't know that the word grace is directly connected etymologically to the word thank. And so when Paul talks about thanking God for God's grace in you, they're so richly connected that we need to understand that all that we have is a grace from God, and that's why he can thank God for these people, because of what God has done in them through grace. Verse 5, enriched. Your translation may something, uh, say something different, but that's a good translation. I've noticed through the years that nobody likes to be called rich or wealthy. Have you noticed that? For one thing, there's a stigma attached, and people say, well, if you're rich, you must be snobby or stingy. But the truth is that every single human being, except one, and that's currently Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, uh, whom I enrich pretty much every week. But everybody in the world except that one person can say there's somebody richer than I am, which is another reason people don't like to be called rich. In comparison to other people, I feel like I don't have as much. 
But it is precisely in that super rich sense that Paul uses this word for the Corinthians. It's not that they were among the socially and politically elite in Corinth. In fact, he says just the opposite in verse 26 of chapter 1. But in Christ, they are enriched. They have everything that they need. They're richer than anyone else who has this world's wisdom or influence. Verse 6, the word I chose is confirming. Who says this about them, that they are enriched by, God, by God's grace? It is God himself. And so the words testimony and confirming in verse 6 are both from the courtroom. Paul wants to imagine themselves in the dock, to use a British expression. When I was younger, we used to ask the question, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And the question was designed to provoke self-examination. Like, would the people around me be able to say, well, based on your behavior, I know that you are a believer in Jesus. But Paul doesn't ex- ask that or expect that of these Corinthians. This is not about self-examination. That idea comes at the end of the second letter in the very last chapter, examine yourself. Right now, he wants you to say, if you've put your trust in Christ, then God himself gives testimony confirming that you belong to him. Remember, who he's writing to. And he's saying to this people, I know this about you. God is confirming his testimony that you belong to him. Verse 7. Again, there's so much theology, but I chose the word eagerly because Paul's uh, emphasis is not so much on theology, but on what God again has done for them. Every spiritual gift, another word related to grace. That's the closest Paul comes in this section to talking about the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from the Spirit, as he'll later explain. That's what they have now, spiritual gifts, but Paul affirms that this is a group that is eagerly awaiting, that's one word in the Greek, Jesus' return. This is a hallmark of Paul's teaching ministry, and whatever else the Corinthians do not get, they get this. Paul is affirming them. You got a lot of conflict, you got issues with spiritual gifts, you got ego issues, but I know that you eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so it's another way that he knows they do have and will have uh, uh, their theology right. They're patiently and confidently waiting for Jesus to come back. How about you? Could Paul say that about you? You're eagerly awaiting the second coming of Jesus. And then verse 8, the word blameless. So Paul again turns to his confidence, not so much in them, but in Jesus and them. Paul had taught them, loved them, shaped them, guided them to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And now he says, I know that God will keep you firm. That's another courtroom idea. And he says, and he will declare you blameless. The word blameless in Greek means blameless. It means blameless. It means without blame. And it's another courtroom idea. In fact, it's another word that relates to the word call. This time, you're called into court accused of a crime. So imagine yourself, and you haven't done anything, and you're called before a judge to answer for your wrongdoing. And at the end of the trial, the judge declares you blameless. You are acquitted. Your accusers are silenced. Your record is expunged. There is no debt outstanding. And Paul says, remember to whom he is writing, Paul says to these Corinthians, keep in mind, I am confident that you are on solid ground. And in that day, 
God will declare you blameless. I get excited about these things. So verse 9, one more verse, the word fellowship. Nowhere in these verses does Paul suggest the Corinthians have earned all this because they're good people. And that's what's remarkable about this passage. Again in verse 9, it's God who is faithful. He is the one who called you into fellowship. That's having something in common with his son. You're in because of what God did. Nobody can take that away from you. You didn't get there by your merit, and so your demerit can't take it away from you. It is God's faithfulness that keeps you in his family. So I pointed out one important word in each verse, and I didn't even point out the most important words, which are God and Father and Lord and Jesus and Christ and Son and he, him, or his referring to God or Jesus. That's a total of 35 times in this passage where God or Jesus is directly referred to just in these nine verses. This is really a passage about Jesus and his Father, and we'll say more about that next week. So what do we do with this on uh, the heels or just as we prepare to celebrate our anniversary? Curtis Blocker sent me an email last week after our introductory Bible studies on Corinthians, and he said, you know, the anniversary would be a great time to review the basics of who we are as a church. Refresh and reinforce us, he wrote in his email. And I said, Curtis, that's exactly what I have in mind, and that's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. The most common place that I say that 1 Corinthians is such a key book for our church at Corinth is in the pastor's class. It's our new members class. I'm introducing Corinth to guests and potential members. And the very first class, we wrestle with the definition of church. And here's my definition of church. It's based on this idea of ecclesia, and it's based on 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2. The church is a community Christ calls. So there's a horizontal element, there's community, there's a vertical element, Christ, but Christ calls us into a community. And there's a universal invisible aspect of that community, but most often the church is in a place, called together in a place. That's why you can't do church on the golf course. I'm sorry, you can't. You can't do church just worshiping out in nature. You can't do church. That's not what Paul is talking about, that you can be anywhere you are in the churches there. You are called into an assembly in a place where you can rub shoulders. And you say the problem with church is, or one of the problems with church is, there are so many messed up people when I go to church. And I want to go amen to that. The problem is exactly that. And think about Paul is writing to people just like that. So when he talks about somebody else's flaws, we would all like to say, for Paul to say, I'm not really sure all of you are in. And it may even be true that all of the Corinthians who read his letter are not all in. They're not all believers. But Paul doesn't talk to them that way, at least not here in the first nine verses. He says, I want you to claim who you are and who you can be in Christ. I want you to claim this, and it's not in spite of who you, I mean, it is in spite of who you are. It's because of what God has done in that. So as I reflected on 1 Corinthians and who we are, I decided for you people, maybe not for the next pastor's class, I need to re- redefine, expand my definition of church. The church is a community of crud that Christ calls. I'm sorry, it had to be a C. So yeah, that's you. 
And that's me. The church is a community of crud. You can look it up yourself. Google it. That's what I mean. All right? The church is a community of crud that Christ calls. And so when we forget that, we forget who we are, and maybe we expect something different out of the church than Paul certainly experiences in his letter to Corinth, and we should expect out of one another. So here's how that applies to us. Three ways, and I'm done. Number one, you need to see yourself through the lens of grace. In Christ, you have been called. You have been set aside. You have been loved. You have been forgiven. And by embracing Jesus Christ, he has owned you. He has, and he promises that he will keep you and that he sees you as blameless because of what Christ did. So in your spiritual failures, stop beating yourself up. Jesus was beaten up enough for your sins and for mine, for the sins of the whole world. This is who we are. We are a church that unashamedly and consistently proclaims this gospel that it's not about our merits, it's not about our performance, it is about how Jesus sees us. And if you've never grasped that, certainly there should be a response of faith to trust in him. But it's not about like, do I have enough faith today or have I performed well enough today? Claim what he says about you and see yourself through the lens of grace. Second application, look down the pew. Now that was going to be kind of metaphorical, but why don't you take a moment and just do that? Sort of look down the pew, people around you, some of them are your family, you're married to some of them. You're only married to one, I hope, at a time. But you're married, you know, they're like in your same household. And uh, so just look down the pew, and I want you to see that person through the lens of grace. Yes, that person who you know, and you may know specifics, but you know is so far short of holiness. Choose to see them, to treat them as holy. You say, well, like, what if I don't know for sure that they're true believers? And I want to go like, why is that even your job to figure out? That's a God thing. Of course people need to respond to him. He's in charge of that. And how would you tell, by the way? You say, well, I can tell by their life. I want to say, be careful about that. You want people to judge you that way? So you simply treat people in the body of Christ as if they are holy. Speak to them that way. This is who we are as a church, a church that is never surprised by misbehaviors among us. When I was a young pastor, I used to be more surprised by, or or maybe aghast when somebody says, did you hear what so-and-so did or said? And I'd go like, I got to fix that problem. Now I just think, wow, what a wonderful sermon illustration you just gave me. So on Mother's Day, it's actually appropriate for us to remember, I don't know if you've noticed through the years I have, that when people say, there's a break in our family and -and so-and-so will never speak to me again, it's not always, but often the men who are involved in that. And it's often like, I can't ever talk to my dad again, or my dad won't talk to me. I'm not saying always, most of the time in my experience. Why is that? Because moms model this better than dads in general. Moms are of the mindset that are going like, you're my kid. I brought you into this world. I adopted you. I chose you. I am not ever giving up on you. Will I correct you? Absolutely, I will. I am your mother. But will I ever give up on you? Will I ever say I'm done with you? Never. I'm your mom. 
And this is how Paul wants us to treat one another in the body of Christ, even when there are significant behavioral issues that we notice, like just treat that person, respond to them with the kind of grace you have been shown. And then there's a third application of this that relates directly to our anniversary, and that is that we look at the church around the corner in the same way, whether it's St. Al's or Holy Trinity or St. Luke's or Viewmont or the Adventist Church or First Pres. Uh, they, they do things differently than we do. In some areas, they believe differently than we do. But who's to say that God is going, man, I sure wish all those other churches were more like Corinth. No, he's not saying that at all. They are different expressions of the body of Christ that minister to people in different ways in different times. So this Saturday night, as part of our anniversary, I wanted to plan a service that celebrates the whole body of Christ in Hickory. This is why I want you to come and join us. So one of the cool things I realized is that several years ago, actually, we, found, we counted the number of churches in Hickory and found out they're right at 150 churches in Hickory. So I'm going, this is a great time, 150th anniversary to celebrate 150 churches not just Corinth. So we've deliberately sort of diversified this service. For some of you, it'll be different than what you're used to. I want you to invite your friends and neighbors who go to other churches and come and join us on Saturday night at 7 o'clock p.m. so we can celebrate this very thing, that we're not just about where we've come in 150 years, but where the body of Christ has come. And here's the cool thing, too. So I start reading church history, our church history, and there are some things like that that I'm going, I've really tried to work hard on that in my pastorate at Corinth. And then I go back at, and realize where we've come from, and this has been the DNA of Corinth for all 150 years. Before the first service in the brush arbor, and we're going to put brush out there next week, and you're going to see what a brush arbor really looks like. Before the first service in this building, Corinth organized the first school, and the school was for all the kids in the community. And the first uh, houses of worship that we constructed were to be shared with the other communities that were developing at the same time. And then in 1880, we called a pastor by the name of A.S. Vaughn. And his vision was to start what became Claremont College, a school for women in this community. And uh, Dr. Vaughn was a professor at Catawba College. And as he laid out this vision, I want to read to you what he said about the college and about this issue in particular. So he uses the word sectarianism, which you would use the word denominationalism, like a party spirit among churches. And Reverend Vaughn said at the time of the founding of Claremont College, what is called sectarianism, an evil connected with modern forms of Christian activity, is to be forever excluded. This school was to be for all believers in this community. And then he goes on to say, Christ and his precious word form the central principles of all nurture and instruction. Christ in the heart is the key that unlocks all the glories of the universe. In other words, this school and this church will always be about Jesus, but it's not about our Jesus as if we own him to the exclusion of everyone else in our community. We want to share and partner with others who know Jesus and follow him. And that has been a hallmark of Corinth ever since. And we want you to join us on Saturday night as we celebrate exactly that with brothers and sisters in our community. So what we share with them is so much more important than where we differ because what we share is who we share, the Lord, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have made a way to see us
as blameless because Christ took all of it for us. And Father, there are tests almost every day of our ability to see ourselves and other believers and other churches the way you have seen us. So thank you for Paul's letter to Corinth. Prepare us for the whipping he's going to give us along the way and the ways in which we need to grow and live out this faith we claim. But Lord, on this day, help us simply to own who we are as the body of Christ and open our eyes to see when we see others, not their behaviors that we applaud or disapprove, but to see Jesus when we see them. We ask in the name of the one who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.